0: This is Purple Elephant, where I bring the proverbial elephant to the table in order to deconstruct ableism, prejudice and misconceptions. On today's episode, we have Holly Scott Gardiner. This is part two of the two-part series I was telling you about. If you haven't already checked out episode one, I very much suggest you do so. This is the continuation on. I learned so much about blindness life skills and what it is to be a blind person and accept in totality what it is to be blind. I really think you're going to enjoy this. I feel like it's important. I feel like we have so
1: much to give. We have so much to gain from knowing other blind people. And someone who's just lost their vision, if they can actually have a positive blind role model in their life who's going out and doing these things, that has to change their perspective, even if it doesn't overnight, and it won't
0: overnight. Just to rewind a little bit, you had the opportunity to go to America a training school for the blind in order to, to learn about the techniques and the tools you're now discussing. Because for those that are listening to this and aren't visually impaired, these things aren't taught to us over here in the UK. So what, what, how did you get into that? First of all, how did you apply? And then how, how has that made you, I guess, in the career that you're, you're stepping forward in today?
1: So I realized when I was in university that guide dogs don't work forever. I mean, I always knew this, but it it sort of came to a head in my first year of university where I thought I've got this dog and she's great, but at some point she's going to retire, and probably not long after I finish uni. And what am I going to do then? Mm -hmm. Do I want a second guide dog? And I thought, well, I quite like having a dog, but I'm also really stressed out because I'm constantly being denied access to places, Mm -hmm. and. um, I was under a huge amount of pressure and I I thought about this and I thought well I don't know if I want a second dog but oh god I can't travel without a dog was kind of where I was going and I was going around in circles where I thought I sort of know how to use a cane but I don't really know how to use one as well as I know how to use a dog Mm
0: -hmm. I
1: was given more cane training when I was applying for a guide dog and I, I could do what I needed to do but I was just an anxious mess and I knew through the magic of the internet that in America there were training centres, and I knew about the National Federation of the Blind, who had been a key part in actually changing my viewpoint on myself and my blindness mm-hmm. when I was a teenager because I discovered their online materials and their online convention, and I knew that they were strongly affiliated with several training centres. So all this led to me thinking, well, how do I go to one of these centres? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get what I need over here. I'm just not. Um, I want more than the rehab system is willing to give me, and I don't want to be waiting and waiting forever to have one mobility lesson a week yeah. so i thought okay how do i get to one of these training centers and i reached out and i asked a bunch of people and i found out that the colorado center offers a scholarship to international students and i thought oh wow this is amazing so i sent an email and i received a response basically saying yes we do offer this scholarship and um we have a huge waiting list and i Replied to say, well, that's fine. I'm only in my first year of university. I won't be finished university until um, May 2019. So I was put on the waiting list, and it worked out that because I was on the waiting list for around three years in the end, um, I could finish university in May and I could start my training at the beginning of June. Wow. So yeah, there were, and I actually wasn't even finished with uni because I was still writing my dissertation, Mm -hmm. but I was finished with all of my lectures and everything. So. In May of 2019, I packed up all my stuff and I dropped my guide dog who would then retire um, off with some friends who were gonna look after her because I I realized it was unfair to bring her because I would be in this intensive training. So she just wouldn't get any work. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, she would even if she retired, she wouldn't get the physical exercise she needed. So I knew that she needed to go somewhere else. So I dropped her off and um, I took my cane and I flew to Denver and I was really welcomed into the Colorado Center as a student and I came in with some solid skills you know I'd been cooking for years and years by that point I'd started to learn to cook when I was about 10 Mm -hmm. so and I'd become decent at cooking while I was at university because I realized that my cooking was horrible and I needed to I I had better taste than I had cooking so (laughs) I was I I better learn to to cook well because i can't do this so i was a decent cook i had strong braille and tech skills and what i was really there for was the cane travel and i did realize in the end that i had something to learn in every single class so whilst i came in thinking cane travel is the only thing i need i learned so much in the kitchen i learned lots of just small things and i learned lots about time management and I also learned to push myself. Yeah, I was a good cook, but could I cook a meal for 60? Absolutely not. Well that was my graduation <laughs> I can, I requirement. I can barely
0: cook a meal for two. <laughs> yeah,
1: well cooking a meal for 60 was my graduation requirement. Mm-hmm. So they set the bar high in this program and all the instructors are blind.
0: Amazing. And
1: any student who has any vision, whether that's, you know, um, they can read large print, or whether that's someone like me who just has light perception wears what they call sleep shades. Mm-hmm. Which are, if anyone has played goalball, has worn like a plastic eye mask, it's like a plastic mask with foam and it's completely blacked out. They're very much like this. And you must wear them all day when you're in training. Because the goal is to teach
0: you non-visual skills. That's really fascinating. I didn't know that even the, the what we would class today is like totally blind people or these mm-hmm. sleep shades as well.
1: Yeah, you only don't if you have no light perception at all. That's the only time you don't wear them. But if you're someone like me who has light perception, even though I class myself as functionally, totally blind,
0: we still use are for our advantage. No, yes. I do, yeah. Yep. Yeah
1: exactly and that is why you wear them because it's to teach you not that your vision is bad it's it's not that it's just to say that actually if you know you can do these things without your vision if you take the shades off and you then have some vision you're not then worrying if your vision decreases oh god can i can i use these skills because what a lot of skills training programs do and certainly this is the rehab model we use over here in the uk is they'll teach you to do things with the vision you have in that moment. So Mm -hmm. if you can squint and read size 36 print with a magnifier, that's what they're going to be telling you to do because they say, well, you can do that. But then when you lose that vision, you've then got to go back for more training and more training and more training. The theory behind the structure discovery program and using sleep shades is that you can go through a really intense training program and you in theory will never need more training again in your life.
0: That's amazing. Because,
1: yeah and and maybe you'll you'll want some updated tech training if you're not someone who's super tech savvy down the line but for the most part you're not going to need any significant training because you've learned to do all these things under sleep shades so you Mm -hmm. know that you can travel with a cane under shades you know you can use a computer you know you can cook Mm -hmm. so when you're expected to do these things if you're then night blind and you're at a work function which runs late you don't have to worry Oh, I got here using my vision. Can I get home? Because you know, sure I can. I I know how to travel with a cane when I'm totally blind. So mm. it yeah, and and that more than anything was a huge learning curve for me. Was the idea that as a blind person I could compete equally, and that I could have a good job, and that I was being taught by blind people who I looked up to, and I thought, wow, these these aren't the kind of blind people I know and that is doing a disservice to lots of the blind adults I know because I know in the UK some amazing blind people Mm -hmm. who are really competent and wonderful um but I certainly saw them as the exception over here absolutely and then suddenly in Colorado Mm. I was surrounded by all these people who were just living their life and who were going out for drinks after work and who were you know once I became their co-worker which I'll get onto were you know chatting with me about their dating life and things like that and just normal adult things that i thought oh this is the life i want Mm -hmm. and i ended up becoming one of their co-workers from a student because i had explained to the director that i was interested in a career in the blindness field and we discussed that i might be able to stay on after my training had ended to then become an apprentice in the rehabilitation teaching program through um the um National Blindness Professional Certification Board mm-hmm. which in the US delivers several qualifications so you can get um a rehab teaching qualification by doing a master's degree or you can do it through an apprenticeship and um so she said to me well we could keep you as an apprentice so I applied to this program was accepted the Colorado center very very kindly extended my visa so that I could do this teaching program and I then joined as Um, a staff member learning to be a rehab teacher so whilst i was a student in the sense that i was a student now in the rehab teaching program i was then a staff member at ccb and i was then teaching the program i'd just graduated from because they'd seen that you know that i had the skills to do that that i that i was a blind person who came in with with skills and certainly the cane travel and things i learnt had Had given me what I needed to become a teacher.
0: Mm -hmm. For someone that doesn't understand the concept of these training centers, can you give an outline of of what it what it does for your independence as a blind person and the classes you take?
1: Yeah, so they are residential, so students come from all over the country And there isn't, it's not like a school where there's a set start date and an end. So one student might arrive in January, three students might arrive in February, and you're all on your own individual training program, but you may take classes together. So you might have three students in a technology class who are all at different stages. So they're working on their own individual projects, but they're having their lesson at the same time mm-hmm. um and you live in apartments which the center owns which are a bus journey away from the center which again forces you to build travel skills because you've got to get the bus to get there every day yeah. and my schedule um and a typical schedule looks something like this so you may start your morning you'll start at 8 with announcements and then at eight you'll start your first class and the morning let's say you, you're, your class is split this way. So you'll have technology for an hour, braille for an hour, and then enrichment for an hour. And enrichment involves employment skills, it involves a tactile art class, it involves an accessible fitness class. So each day of the week, enrichment is something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really to enhance the program because whilst you might say okay what does fitness have to do with employment it's about showing people that they have options Mm -hmm. and it's not just about going you know okay we're going to teach you blindness skills it's also about showing people here's some cool sports you can play or maybe you were a painter before you lost your vision and and here's some here's an art class you know and and the people teaching the art class are blind as well which is really cool Mm -hmm. and then you would have philosophy and every student comes together for philosophy
0: mm-hmm. so
1: whereas for your other classes you're in small groups yeah and philosophy is um a class on the philosophy of blindness so we talk about the philosophy of the national federation of the Blind. um we talk about philosophical blindness issues such as you know as a blind person do you want to date only blind people or date sighted people or do you not care you discuss these things as students you discuss okay if you're a blind person and you're going to an event and there's a buffet table with food how do you handle this situation as a blind person and it would give us the opportunity to just talk about things we needed to talk about and some of these things were so important you know and i found really helpful um we talked about parenting as blind people we talked about going home and how to show our families that we weren't the same blind person who left particularly for people who had just lost their vision to show their families that yes they are a blind person who has the skills to compete in society Mm -hmm. so it gave us a chance to talk about all these things and hopefully show students that there is a positive philosophy on blindness Mm -hmm. and then um you would break for lunch and then the afternoon these two classes are slightly longer so you'd have a longer home management class which is cooking, cleaning, um, personal care, all these different things and then a cane travel class and half the student body would have home management and cane travel in the morning and the other three in the afternoon and the other half would have the tech braille enrichment in the morning and the home mm-hmm. management and cane travel in the afternoon and then within that you're split into smaller groups and typically the program is nine months mine was a six-month program because I was a scholarship student but for Americans who are funded by their local government um by their state it's a nine-month program and they will live at the center for nine months and learn all these things
0: okay fantastic and there are things that you've shared on social media and I've done a bit of my own research because I think the training centers are absolutely exquisite so for (laughs) for um a sighted person listening to this you do things like woodwork and going hiking and things like that can you can you just explain like what that means in practicality sense and how they teach you
1: yeah so woodshop is a class that um as part of enrichment you do a home maintenance class so every student will start with one class in the woodshop and that will be home maintenance. So you'll learn how to do things like install a bathroom suite or rewire a plug. And the same teacher is also the woodshop teacher. And once you've maybe got better at technology or braille or you're really good in the kitchen, you can cut back on that class and then move into the woodshop. And um, it, it was fascinating because I have absolutely no practical skill whatsoever. I'm hopeless at DIY. I wouldn't even know oh God, I I just wouldn't know how to do anything. I mean, just even changing a light bulb, I'd be like, oh God, great. So I arrived and I was like, this is gonna be a nightmare, but I was also really enthusiastic. I was like, I don't know anything, this is great. So um, I found Woodshop amazing. And how I was taught was David, who was the Woodshop teacher, um, is a totally blind person who obviously has just amazing amazing skills and he would teach us firstly through exploring the different pieces of equipment so we'd go around the woodshop and we'd be able to feel the equipment and he would explain the safety features of the equipment he would explain his requirements in the woodshop for example you know you can't just start switching stuff on you've got to talk about what you're doing, where Mm -hmm. your hand should be placed when you turn on a saw, for example. Um, To check with the other people in the room that they're wearing, like, ear defenders and things, because it can be really loud. To check that they've got their shades on, or that they've got some form of eye protection if they're a totally blind student who doesn't wear shades, because if you're Mm -hmm. sawing wood, you know, there's still splinters, so you need to wear a face covering. and he would talk through all these things, and then you'd start with something basic. So he'd show you a click rule, which is kind of a tactile ruler. And when, and it, it's, I don't know how to even explain it. It's like, um, it's almost like a long, thin tube, and you pull the tube out. And as you pull it, it clicks. Mm-hmm. And there's tactile markings along it. So each tactile marking is half an inch but then each tiny click in between is one sixteenth of an inch so by using this you can get fairly accurate measurements and you can then use that to measure your wood and to move the saw to the position you need it to cut the right length so Mm -hmm. he'll start by teaching you things like that and i realized in the end how much of it actually isn't visual we're taught to believe that this stuff is so so visual Mm -hmm. but once I realized that actually the measuring is the most visual part of it and once you have an accessible measuring tool really so long as you know how the machinery works you can be as safe as anyone um Mm. and that 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 was amazing for me to learn it gave me so much confidence and I actually ended up as my final woodshop project because for each class you complete projects I built a display box and it's um it's not a very tall but maybe a foot tall, and it has um, a glass front to it, and in it is my bell. And when you graduate from an NFV training center, you get given what they call um, a freedom bell, which is to signify that you, when you ring that bell, it's to signify that you have achieved freedom as a blind person, and mm-hmm. you've learned these skills, and you now have that. And um, it has an engraving on it which says, um, Colorado Center for the Blind, um, take charge with confidence. 2019 yeah I graduated in two thousand nineteen and um and I made a box for my bell because it was something really important to me so that's what I made as my woodshop project
0: amazing about streamlining all the things you've learned and the skills you've you've put into fruition and then it's taking you on the career that you are mm-hmm. going through right now what made you I guess decide uh, to do that
1: oh to become a rehab teacher yeah. um I don't know. So mm, this is complicated. I toyed with the idea of becoming a teacher for the visually impaired for a long time. I also realized that I didn't want to qualify as a teacher first. So to become a TVI, you have to be a regular teacher, like in a school. And I was like, Ooh, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I wanted to teach blind kids and like I wanted to teach blind kids all these great things that i think they need to know but i didn't actually want to be a classroom teacher first i i don't want to have to become a spanish teacher for five years Mm. before i could get my TVI qualification that sounded horrible and um when i was at ccb i realized that i could do the rehab teaching apprenticeship and get this qualification and i loved teaching i loved teaching on my apprenticeship and i will always look very fondly on that six months. Um I don't know if I'll become a teacher full time and it's kind of complicated because there aren't that many rehab teaching jobs. And then in the UK, blind people are quite significantly shut out from mm. the field as well. So I may not get a teaching job, but what I would love to do is um maybe set up some of my own teaching and teach people on the side, you know, doing my own thing because what made me want to do it It, is it's so hard to say it's very much that i i feel like it's important i feel like we have so much to give we have so much to gain from knowing other blind people and someone who's just lost their vision if they can actually have a positive blind role model in their life who's going out and doing these things that has to change their perspective even if it doesn't overnight and it won't overnight i've had students who three months later are still insisting that they're blind so they can't do anything. And I'm there day after day teaching them mm-hmm. and they still don't believe it because they've got to go on their own journey. Mm-hmm. But what it does do is once they start coming round, um, the evidence is there. They're not having to go and search for it like we did. They're mm-hmm. not having to think, well, I don't know any blind people who do this because they do, there's someone right there. And, and that that was so important to me and has always been. What I would like to I think use my teaching for down the line is looking at how i can use my experience my understanding to influence policy because i've realized that actually nothing changes when we don't have the infrastructure to let it right now our rehab system is a disaster and you could bring in 20 of me and it would still be a disaster because you've got to change the system as much as the people within it um you've got to have a system that supports those people so, I would love to use what i 've gained to actually influence policy at a higher level to say, "Okay well, this system isn't working, so what will but i i, I don't know I just love teaching, I love sharing my skills with people. I love seeing someone grow in confidence." I loved those moments when a student would do something they'd never done before and that they previously believed they maybe couldn't do mm. when they'd cook something for the first time or when they download a book for the first time in their tech class and just all these different things that I think show the growth of us as human beings and show that actually we can adapt and that are small steps towards helping that person really take back their life and say, this is what I want for my life. hmm started my apprenticeship in January and I just graduated in December so it was a really difficult transition because I was then the instructor of some people I'd been in training with wow. as students and that is a really difficult thing because you do find that lots of the instructors are former students of the training program mm-hmm. but maybe they've you know graduated the program they've gone off and done something else for five or six years and they come back and be a teacher later on it's very unusual for someone to leave training and within a matter of weeks be an instructor and Mm. although I was an apprentice I was still teaching and that can be quite difficult because people who had been my friends um, I certainly had to take a step back because there were boundaries that I was not willing to cross as an instructor I might have been willing to party with my friends when I was a student but I didn't want to party with them as an instructor because I felt like as a professional um, that wasn't something I was really comfortable with doing and I wanted to be perceived as a professional yeah so yeah and I couldn't talk about certain things with them you know that I talked about before so it it did make for a difficult transition what I was really lucky to have was amazing amazing co-workers who Welcomed me completely, and who really made me feel welcome as a coworker, and not, oh, well, she was just a student. You know, they ah. were people who invested time in teaching me when I didn't know something. You know, say I was working with a student who was being really difficult. I might go and find a coworker and be like, "Hey, I'm, you know, having this situation," and they would take the time to share their knowledge with me
0: mm-hmm.
1: as someone who's a really experienced teacher. You know, but. What they did was treat me like an equal, and that made my apprenticeship so much easier because I knew that if a student was being disrespectful or difficult, which not many of my students were at all. Honestly, I was so lucky as well to have a great, great group of students, but occasionally I would have this where someone was like, oh, you're just an intern, what do you know, and things like that. And yeah. I was very lucky that my co-workers had my back, and I knew that I could stand up to a student and say, yeah, I'm an apprentice but I'm also telling you that this needs to get done. Mm-hmm. And you know, I should be respected. So it it helped so much to have that and to have a boss as well, who had shown me so much kindness by giving me a chance and who would let me come into her office and talk to her and ask her questions. And you know, being the director of the center, she's really busy, but I would quite often come in in the morning and say, hey, I'm dealing with this thing. I This is a difficult situation what's the best way for me to handle this because I am not experienced enough yet to know and she would take the time to share her opinion with me and what she felt was the best way to handle certain things so I was just given this wonderful team of people who helped me grow and honestly my students were great overall I had so many just fun students who wanted to do great things with their lives or had these really clear goals or students who came in going, I don't know what I'm doing. This is all terrible, but who kind of took the program in their stride and worked really hard. And my first student who I taught to cross a street under, um, sleep shades and I knew how to cross a street, but I was like, Oh, I've never taught anyone how to cross a street. And I was sent out on my own with this student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, was walking with him and he was doing great and we stopped at this crossing and I got him to identify different features of it and it was such a windy day. Like the wind was practically blowing us over and I was like, this is not... The best way to teach someone to cross the street when it's really windy so we didn't do it all that many times and we we did it a few times but afterwards he was like this is so cool i just crossed the street under sleep shades and i was thinking you have no idea how relieved i am right now because this is the first time i've been out on my own teaching someone how to cross the street and you do feel like suddenly i don't know i felt like i had someone's life in my hands i was like Mm. if this goes wrong like this is on me. I've got to know what I'm doing and I've got to be confident in myself. And that also helped me because I realized that actually, if I wavered in my confidence, your student will see that. It
0: mm-hmm. yeah. helped
1: me realize that actually I couldn't be a student who was worrying anymore. I was now an instructor who, even if there was a situation that was potentially tricky, I had to keep my cool and look at it and go, okay, what's the best way for us to do this?
0: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So in America, the roads are bloody ginormous in comparison <laughs> to the UK how does oh. it fare crossing and this probably sounds like a really simple question but I'm just curious and I think other people will be how does it differ crossing a road in America to crossing a road in the UK because we learn different things through our orientation and mobility that don't work in the UK to America and vice versa so how how does it work to cross a road safely in America so i
1: actually think it's easier once you know how to do it which i was so relieved about because in america you don't cross like see, you know how a lot of crossings in england will be in the middle of a street so you'll be walking down a long street and then there'll be some tactile paving yeah and you're not near the next street so in america it's always on the corner where two streets intersect so Hmm. like a cross shape Yeah. and what you do is say you're crossing the street and on your right is the other street you know that's intersecting with it so you will listen for that parallel traffic and when the street on your right is moving from your front to your back or from your back to your front depending on which cars are closer to you you'll know that it's then safe to cross because the street that's in front of you that you're crossing their traffic can't move otherwise they drive into moving yeah. traffic on the other street so you learn these things and that's the simple way i mean there's more things because you've got to listen you've got to know for example that cars can turn right on red so if your parallel traffic's on your left you know that if, even if um you can't just rely on a turning car and think oh my parallel is going because that car could be turning even though it's red and the street in front um, of you has the light yes. so you learn these things right but and, and it is scary because, you know, running across a 10-lane street, even if you're confident, it's a long way to the other side. And you're, mm-hmm. you're like, I really hope the light is a long light. So I will always advise students, and I'll always do this myself, to wait one light cycle <clears throat> before I actually cross the street for the first time. Because what I want to do is, is find out how long that light lasts for. Yeah. Because then I can think, okay, I've got long enough to cross this street. Or, okay, I need to be, like, Get a move on when I cross the street. Yeah. So I mean, and some of those things you can apply. Certainly really listening to traffic patterns is something I've taken back with me. And um it's difficult because in the UK I think there probably are patterns that we could listen for. We just don't know because no one's teaching us, right? So mm-hmm. one of the first things I did when I came about was I read the highway code because I'm a really really exciting person. <laughs> and I do things like read the highway code. But I figured I was like actually what we need to understand as blind people isn't how pedestrians work it's how cars work Mm. we need to understand what rules they're obeying because when we know that we then understand fundamentally how the rules that pedestrians have intersect with the rules drivers have it's Mm. not enough just to be told you listen for the beep of the light and then you go i'm like loads of crossings don't have lights loads of lights don't beep sometimes they won't even have a cone you know you've got to know more than that so i'm i really want to advocate for there to be more training on how the laws work around cars in the uk for blind people so that we can actually learn what are cars doing at this intersection okay what can i hear can i hear that this is a t intersection and you Mm. would be able to we've just got to learn how so those that's the main thing you're teaching students and certainly that's the main thing we teach students in structure discovery is to really really listen to those traffic patterns and to stand at an intersection and analyze it to be able to go okay this is you know a four-way intersection there's two streets intersecting each other or okay this is a t intersection um which street am i on okay i'm on this one you know this is a roundabout different things like that so you're listening and you're being able to hear what the traffic's doing and then you know okay if i know this is a t intersection what do i know about how traffic operates on t intersections and we don't get any of that over here which is unfortunate i think it is all we're taught really a lot of what we're taught in mobility is to listen for when it's quiet yeah but i don't agree with that i think that's dangerous actually because what if it's just quiet because there's a lull in traffic and then oh well you know no one's going to drive into you when you're crossing the street well I don't really want that to be my reassurance, honestly. Like <laughs> yes. I really don't want that to be the um, you know, there's absolutely small streets where I'll take that. I'll be like, right, I'm just gonna you know, pop across this road. It's very quiet. I'm in a residential certainly streets around where I live that I know are really, you know, empty. Yeah. Um, I live I live on a cul-de-sac, for example. I don't feel nervous walking up in the road mm-hmm. until I get to the pavement at the top. Like it's tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't learn really how traffic works so then actually when things are unexpected we're not taught how to get ourselves out we're not taught well maybe there's a crossing further down that we could walk down to find a crossing further down then walk back up because what we're taught to do is stick to these very rigid routes so what happens when the bus breaks down two stops away from your normal stop well what you've got to do is is think about things like, okay which direction is the bus going and that's really the start point is you know or if you miss your stop and you've gone one stop further your first step should be to turn around and head back the way the bus has come because you've missed your stop but it's even things like that that we're not teaching people to use that kind of critical thinking Mm -hmm. around how they travel
0: yeah for example your training um and even as a teacher how how you would manage that if a student was to come across and say this to you
1: yeah, so if I was out with a student and we missed the bus, um, which can absolutely happen, because if I was asking a student to listen out, this is another thing about structured discovery. If you know they've missed their stop, unless you're on a real time constraint, you're not going to tell them, <laughs> because, and this is this sounds horrible, but it's part of learning to be yeah. really. Confident. If you protect your student all the time, and I've noticed this in the UK, a lot of times you'll get driven into town by your cane travel instructor and then you'll do some work on a specific route and then they'll drive you back there is no yeah. risk involved in that none at all yeah. so what we would be doing would be we'd be getting a train in one infamous incident my student got off the train and i didn't because i was daydreaming <laughs> they were with another instructor who i was shadowing and i suddenly realized that they'd gotten off the train and i'd been just in my own world so it can happen to the instructor too and i'm not <laughs> the only one who it's happened to <laughs> um you know, we're human, it happens, but if if this happened and we got off at the next stop, what I would ask them to do is um, tell me what they were finding. So often verbalising it can really help you. To, well, I'm finding grass, okay, sweep your cane to both sides, what are you finding? On the right, they might find the kerb down into the road, or they might hear the traffic really close. On the yeah. left, they might say, well, there's more grass. And then you'd you'd get them you we call it asking pertinent questions so you you don't give them information you ask them leading questions until they could tell you well there is no pavement in front of me and then all the only thing we can establish from that is okay so this street the pavement has been lost in between where we get off the bus normally and where we are now so then we talk about okay what possible solutions do we have well one solution could be walking on the grass that is a solution we would teach students to walk on grass verges, um, using the sound of the traffic and the curb as a guide because Mm. there are some streets where there there just aren't pavements and you've got to know how to walk sometimes, particularly in the U.S. where some things aren't pedestrianised very well. yeah. So teaching the student the skill of walking along the grass and keeping in line with the traffic, you know, using the traffic on their side as an audible guide as to where they are, you know, that can work too and Mm -hmm. so we'd probably start off by doing that and then if that didn't work we'd come back and we'd say well what what's our other solution and i'd problem solve them to the point where they decided to carry on further up the street cross over and double back on the other side to see if it was the same there Mm -hmm. or we might even have to walk one street over you know and and see if we could find an intersecting street and then walk along that street and go back and then go back again almost like a square Mm -hmm. which would take you quite a bit out of your way but sometimes that might be the only way to get home and if you're by yourself Mm -hmm. then learning these skills is really helpful Mm. um so what i would really get students to do and that's what i would do i mean there's definitely been times when i've been on travel classes by myself or when i've been going somewhere and i've encountered something and i've thought oh god i don't know what's going on um (laughs) and i've had to take a step back and listen and think okay what what do i know could be happening and what what are the facts and what are the facts telling me? Because sometimes that, that's the hardest thing is you go, oh, God, there's grass. Oh, no, there's grass. There shouldn't be grass. There shouldn't be grass. And I've done yeah, this too. That's and what I, I do. yeah. yeah. Why is there grass? And instead of standing back and thinking, okay, logically, why is there grass? If there's no pavement, it just means there's no pavement. That's all yeah. you can take from it. But we all do this thing where we think, no, no, there should be pavement. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So it's teaching people to kind of really ask themselves lots of questions as well Mm. um and hopefully you know once they finish their training to not need an instructor to ask them questions to be asking themselves those same questions like Mm. okay if i know the bus stop should now be in front of me because i've turned around to head back the way the bus is coming i know this for a fact all i can deduce from that is that there is somehow no pavement so here are my options and Mm. it's to get someone to to look at it that way and it it takes work and time for sure.
0: Yeah. And I think that's probably why I'm so interested in not only your own personal story, but the teachings that can be brought across for rehabilitation in the uk because as i said i'm so very lucky i've had fantastic rehab officers. i've had fantastic gdmis the whole point of having a guide dog is that we explore together if i get lost i get lost with the guide dog training or with mobility and orientation through a, a cane and i think we really need to because there are so many times that i've been lost and and I find my way home obviously or else we won't be having this conversation today but it's i get lost and i'm actually nowhere near as stressed because i have the confidence that i'll get home eventually because i just need to keep problem solving until i get there
1: right and i think if you accept that getting lost is part of being human then actually you you learn to let go of the fear but but it there is that there's just so much fear around it like oh if you get lost it's terrible it's like no it's not it's great i mean so much of what I did in training was going somewhere new and just walking around and going, well, this is a busy street. I bet there's some businesses. And one thing, oh, I hated this. I hated this so much at the beginning of my training. And I know why it's important, but it just killed me. Um, One thing they'd get you to do would be, you'd be walking down a street and they'd get you to find doorways with your cane. You'd open the doorway, like on, on a, on a, you know, a high street yes. thing, and you'd go in, you'd say, oh, what business is this? And you have to ask what the business was and ask for the address. And I hated it. I was like, I hate talking to people. This is terrible. This is embarrassing. <laughs> but I discovered so many things through doing it. And I discovered the confidence to just walk into a shop and go, what shop is this? And you might find something really cool by doing that. If you're so mm. panicky because you're looking for Marks and Spencers and, oh God, you don't know where it is. You don't know where it is. Rather than actually going, I don't know where it is. Go into every shop. Yeah, you might take 10 minutes longer, but you're going to find loads of things you never knew existed. Yeah. And also people are going to get to know you and you're going to build confidence in yourself by doing that. And, you know, people got used to it as we were just the blind people with really long canes wearing blindfolds like you know people got used to us because we're wearing these blacked out shades over our faces we have really long canes because another thing we advocate is for much longer canes than they give you over here Mm um and that's not an american thing overall that again traditional american teaching short canes only root training Mm -hmm. this is the very specific um training style used within the national federation of the blind Mm -hmm. and we advocate for canes to be somewhere between say your the top of your mouth and your forehead oh wow so so really if a cane comes up to your nose that is the ideal level because you could achieve a much faster walking speed with a slightly longer cane because if your cane is you know just up to your chest you've barely got one step in front of you that you can cover with that cane yeah. So your reaction time can never be good enough. So, and it, you're feeling out in front of you, your arms really stretched out far in front of you. We advocate for the arm to be fairly close by the side, to not be stretched, you know, a foot or two in front of you, and to really achieve a faster walking speed and to be stood upright, not stretching out forward. Yeah. So that's what we really push for. And so we ended up becoming very recognizable. And once you've realised that everyone just views you as one of the blind people's really long canes and um blindfolds you just sort of let go of being embarrassed
0: (laughs) yeah I I I don't know about you because obviously your your journey is like different to mine Mm -hmm. in the fact that you were born with your visual impairment but I found it more empowering being totally blind and asking for help than I did when I was uh registered blind but you refused to use a cane and walking around like that
1: so i think there's power in owning who you are and certainly like when you walk up to someone you ask for information you know you could be asking excuse me can you tell me what the name of this street is or can you tell me what business this is you you're in control of that situation actually because mm-hmm. although you're asking them for information if they don't give you the information you want and some people won't not because they're they're malicious but because they just are not good at answering questions Mm. you can move on and find someone else right but you were in control of that you walked up to them you asked for information you knew what you wanted to know if you're someone who's struggling really with minimal vision who should be using blindness techniques but has been told you're not blind enough to be blind you know you're partially sighted you know only blind people do this which is another thing we really fight against in our teaching um you're then dependent on what little vision you have so you're then squinting at a price tag and you think oh i can't ask someone because they won't know why i'm asking like they don't know i'm blind and you're then struggling to see for example a queue and you're you're wandering around and maybe you bump into someone and then they get upset with you and you feel like you can't tell them well it's because i'm blind or you say that and they go well you can't be blind because you know you you don't have a cane you don't look blind whatever that means so it's that thing of I think once you own it and you actually walk up to someone and maybe you miss the end of the queue and you go, excuse me, can you tell me where the end of the queue is? You, you are actually in control. And a lot of people think you're less in control because they're like, yeah, but you stand out. And I'm like, yeah, so what? I stand out as what? A blind person? I am a blind person. Mm -hmm. So all I am is being me and that's okay. And it, it takes a while to get there though, but it's definitely an empowering experience.
0: Yeah. I I'm very fortunate though that I've I've been instilled with such confidence and I guess I've always had to advocate my parents have been amazing advocates but I've always had to advocate for myself anyway and sometimes talk to adults directly when they've refused to address me. So I've always felt confident in asking for help even when I didn't quote unquote look visually impaired look blind. Right. So I was my my issue was The wandering around to ask someone for help and then if they walked away from me being like why did they walk away I can't understand whereas now (laughs) now it's a totally blind person if I'm lost in the street either with my cane or with Ida for example I'm lost I just keep shouting excuse me until someone stops (laughs) yeah Whereas, I mean, it's like before i would literally use the the vision i had to find a human i would mm-hmm. keep walk up and down and up and down and up and down the street whereas now if i if i genuinely not that i get lost very often thank goodness but if i am lost in that capacity and i'm like oh for god's sake i what, what where have i gone wrong i'll just keep shouting excuse me and i hear people walking past me and i think Maybe they're on their phone, maybe they've got headphones in. Instead of like internalizing it, why are they ignoring me? Oh my god, what's wrong? I'm just like, Mm -hmm. oh, just wait for the next person to come across.
1: Right. And I think we have to realize that 90% of the time it's not personal. I do think there is crime against disabled people. I do think there is hate crime. But I think most of the times when we're ignored, certainly in public, are just the world is really self-absorbed. I know I've been on a bus before and I will be in the way of like um so in the us they definitely are very strict about wheelchair users getting the priority seats and absolutely they will make a blind person move to give a wheelchair user that space and i'm in full agreement of that right Mm -hmm. i can move i can sit somewhere else you know but sometimes i've been like listening to music and someone will have to come and like give me a nudge and go excuse me can you move so someone can oh yeah sorry like and i would never deliberately ignore someone it's just Mm. we are as unfortunately in our society extremely self-absorbed yeah so I've just learnt to let go of it and be like oh well all right there'll be another one yeah
0: <laughs> are you are you empowered enough especially say in, in the UK and, and your journey um are you empowered to ask for a seat on the bus as in if you I guess for me as a cane user I almost find it easier to get a seat on the bus um because my cane was I've always had a longer cane so I'd sweep it so if I felt someone's feet I'd just move on to the next one whereas with Uh the Ida she stops so (laughs) my guide dog is hilarious she stops to say hello to people she doesn't do her job (laughs) she's like oh human hi so um I have to be very forthright with her um to find the next seat so if I come across a, a person I've, I've actually asked, especially if the bus pulls off, I've said, excuse me, do you, do you require the seat? And they're like, Oh no. And I'm like, would you mind if I took it? Is that okay? Like just asking the question. Um, and, but I know there's so many visually impaired. And so I'm not assuming it's my right. I'm asking, you know, because I, um, am blind. There are things up there. are going to be times where I screw up and I, quote-unquote assume that I'm deserving of a seat or something and I'm not because somebody else is already there there before me but if I if I like one of my um memories of this is where I asked a person um I could hear the whole bus was full and I didn't want to walk down to the bottom of the bus because I I have arthritis so for me I have mobility Mm -hmm. issues as soon as I'm on a moving vehicle it's a lot harder for me to get my balance right and so I prefer to sit at the front because of that, and then I'm not tripping over people, etc. So there was a youngish person in their 20s, listening to music, and they had um, lots and lots of shopping on the seat next to them, the pull down seat and in their lap. And I could just, I don't know how I knew this, but I just did. And so... Um, I said, excuse me. And again, I don't know if they were deliberately ignoring me doing that. Oh, she's blind. I'm not talking to her or because they were listening to music, you know, they just didn't notice. So I said, excuse me. And they were like, yeah. And I'm like, "Um, I'm really sorry to ask. Do you, do you require the seat? And they were like, uh, well, I, I'm sitting here, but I can move if you want. I was like, oh, I'd really appreciate that just because it's a lot easier for me and my guide dog there isn't much room for her. She tucks under my feet and they're like, oh yeah, of course, yeah. I moved across and like half the bus were like offering me their seat at the exact same time. And I just thought, I'm, I'm so used to human compassion that I I'm not shy to ask, but I know there's so many, especially visually impaired people that that wouldn't ask and I just wondered if maybe if you were the same before maybe um CCB to now or or have you learned different techniques that you're like you don't even ask someone to to move per se because you just find a seat regardless yes i
1: I think as a cane user, it's definitely really easy to find a seat, as you say, you know. So I would either look for a seat or I'd probably stand, depending on the length of the journey. Um, and I think at that point, people would start panicking so much that a blind person was standing, they'd try and force me into a seat, which is its own kind of problem in itself, you know, because I definitely think, like, I don't want some elderly person to stand in my place, Absolutely. you know, like they, yeah. they're yeah. at more risk. So um, I think for sure, if I needed, something I feel confident enough to ask for it certainly if I if I did get another guide dog and I particularly had a big dog who couldn't fit in a small seat I would just ask look is it possible for me to sit on this seat just because I'm, you know my dog doesn't fit here like I would explain it yeah I mean I think all we can do is we can go up to people and explain and ask mm-hmm. and I think if someone says no I do need the seat I would just go with okay they do I mean yeah. they might not right but I'm not comfortable challenging someone because I think for all I know they do, you Mm -hmm. know? So, um, but yeah, I mean, I I do think I'm comfortable asking for things like that. I don't think I typically ask for it much because I'm usually happy to stand on a bus or something, Mm. but if, if for sure, if I feel like I need something and I know it's what I need, I would feel comfortable to say, Hey, or if the bus hadn't started moving, I'd definitely feel comfortable being like, Oh, do you mind telling me where there's an open seat? You know, and then Oh yeah. Yeah, I That, that too. because yeah, yeah. I think that's really important to if if you know, it is harder to find open seats with a dog, I think, than with a cane. So actually asking to me seems like the most sensible way of doing it quite often. So I would often do that and just say, Oh, do you mind telling me where there's an open seat?
0: Yeah. I yeah I I think it's just because for me I'm I'm really lucky that with my what what I do is I'm in and out of London using the tubes all the time but I get buses to the train station and because I know I'm going to be on my feet all day and I have arthritis I'm very wow. conscious of trying to rest as much as I physically can because as soon as the pain kicks in I can't concentrate I can't say for example I'm doing a presentation. I'd I'd lose my chain of thread. I wouldn't be good at my job. So it's, I find it, every situation's different. Every blind person's different, but I find it very difficult when blind people, especially like think they deserve a seat, especially right at the beginning of the bus. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, but you can walk down the aisle. Uh, The reason I'm doing this is actually for my arthritic point of view. The, The many times that I've stood on a tube um, and again, like an older person's offered me a seat and I'm like, no, thank you. I'm absolutely fine because if, especially if I have something to hold on to or balance against, it can take some of the weight off my ankles. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that people do offer me a seat more often than I actually have to ask, but I think disabled people or visually impaired and blind people for sure. If they can't find a seat straight away, they then start to panic. And then if mm-hmm. someone doesn't offer them a seat, they then feel self-righteous that they deserve a seat. And i'm just like but if you're not willing to ask the question then you can't accept you can't then stand your ground and think you deserve a seat
1: right i think we have to ask and we have to know what we need like i know if i can stand someone probably needs that seat more so then i stand you know if you're going to be in pain you need to sit so Mm. it's like we've got to advocate for what we need and i i do think you know actually as a blind person who wants to be treated like an equal I have to speak up for what I need when I need something and maybe an accommodation that's different to some blind people. So I actually cannot use my left hand that well anymore because I have damage to my hand. So I use an electric can opener to open like tinned food. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's designed for old people. It's great. I, I think it's hilarious. It literally says great for senior citizens. when I, bought <laughs> it. And I was like, I was like, great way to make me feel better, but I can't physically squeeze the, bits of the can opener together with my fingers so it's like I know I need to I wouldn't feel uncomfortable asking someone if I was in an environment where I didn't have that to open something for me because I'm like I can't do it it's got nothing to do with my blindness and if they then come away thinking blind people can't open tin food that's their problem not mine like Mm. I'm not going to not ask for something just because other blind people don't need it but equally I think like I can't then expect someone to know I need it if I don't ask so it's all about saying like again, just being really strong self-advocates and knowing what we need as individuals and and feeling confident to stand up for that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that's a lot to do with it, isn't it? It's it's about Mm self-confidence and self-empowerment because I, yeah, I've always been that person. I've even been like the leader in a group of visually impaired people with the least amount of sight because I'm the confident (laughs) one. I so yeah. will approach and say excuse me would you mind telling us when the next bus is or blah 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 and yeah. other people around me like I can tell they fidget and they squirm and they're like oh yeah. I don't but again I think that's a lot to do with their personalities as well as like their confidence level as a visually impaired person but I think advocating for yourself is obviously super important but mm-hmm. I guess it's just for me I'm i I'm, I think the whole Your your journey sounds fantastic, anyway, and everything you've achieved from your your own personal journey, and then going to America and learning the skills, and now hopefully wanting to to bring it back across the UK. But I think I I don't know whether this sounds a bit like hippie, but I feel like we just need to teach disabled people to be more empowered, regardless. Of absolutely, yeah. Did you want to add anything?
1: Oh no, sorry, go on.
0: Uh, yeah we just need to um kind of yeah empower disabled people to be become empowered and it's asking is okay because i think that's that's a great tool for self-advocacy is to ask um and i i think that's it it's because i've never been afraid or shy to ask i'm always that i'm that kid as well that like speaks to old people on the bus i'm that i was that kid that offered to carry like old people's bags and stuff because i was just taught Like, you know, by my parents, just offer people a hand or whatever. Just, it's just, it's who I am. As I've lost more and more vision, I've probably been the recipient of that help a lot more than I've ever offered the help out since. But I'm still very grateful that I've been empowered by my own family to just say, it's okay to ask. Right, and
1: knowing that actually you can speak up, and that the only thing you can do really is take charge of your own situation and look at it and go, okay, if I need help in this moment, I can ask for help. Like I can do that. And having the confidence to go and do that and the belief that it's something you can do, that is definitely something that if people felt more confident to do that, I think that would make a huge difference.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. There was, um, co- slightly changing topic there's a question that i'm sure i think i asked you on facebook um you mentioned about one of the skills you were taught about using the sun to help you with direction and things like that how how does that work exactly because in the uk we don't get much sun (laughs) well yeah we do get
1: enough though and you don't always have to use the sun so we use the sun as a tool so The sun is one of the tools in our toolbox, is how we view it. So if there's no sun, well, tough luck. You're not using the sun today. (laughs) But how I would use the sun is, for example, if it was early in the morning and I was walking down a street and the sun was on my right hand side. So I know that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. You know, we know that we we learn this, right? Mm -hmm. So if the sun's on my right-hand side and it's early in the morning, that means east is to my right, which means I'm walking north. So that already gives me some information. I know I'm walking north, Mm -hmm. okay? So then if I get turned around at some point and I think, oh, wait, which way was I heading? I can use the sun to get my bearings in that location as well. Particularly, say, if I'm in a car park and I know, for example, that the sun is behind me as I'm entering that car park. Mm -hmm. if i'm then trying to find my way back to the entrance i might find i might use the sun being in front of me and head towards that and then even if i don't end up at the same place i know i can walk along that line and i should find the exit or entryway to that car park for example Mm -hmm. so we use it for things like that we also use it when crossing a street so if the sun again was directly on your left as you're crossing the street you really keep that sun on your left-hand side and it helps you keep your alignment when you're crossing. So you cross in a straight line as well. So it's things like that that um, I would use it for. And then you know, know, okay, in the morning it's in the east, in the afternoon it will start heading south until it goes around to the west. And so you can sort of estimate which direction you're heading based on the sun. And then once you start to learn your environment, you start to learn, okay, the high street in my town runs north and south. I'm just using this as an example. You might be like, okay, if I know that it's the morning and the sun is in front of me and I'm walking down this street, I'm then walking east, so I'm not on the high street because the Mm -hmm. high street runs Mm -hmm. north and south. So I know I'm not on that street. So you can use it for things like that too. And of course it's only one tool in your toolbox,
0: Um, but it definitely is a useful one I found. I just find it so ultra fascinating because I, you know obviously the 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 sun and the concept of the sun i completely understand and i learned it through through school but yeah. i never thought to use it as a tool uh, again because i guess we're not taught it in that regard but i never thought to use it as a tool to help you align yourself and to figure out that you're going the wrong way yeah it's
1: it's incredible once a- First, when I started to be taught this, I was like, this is ridiculous. What are you even talking about? I'm never going to use this. This is a load of rubbish. And at first, like, it takes you a while because you've got to start learning, you know, figuring out where it is at different times of day and you've got to get used to it and you've got to do some, like, work it out in your head. Like, okay, if mm. the sun is on my left shoulder at the back, okay, which way, you know, yeah. this time of day. But actually, once you start doing it day after day, suddenly it becomes easy and then you're like, I'm using this all the time. And it is only one tool, and it's also a tool that you can use whether you can see or not, because mm. you can feel the sun. Yeah, Even if you're blind, you can feel the sun on your face, particularly you know in summer. Yeah. Obviously in winter, it's drizzling, there's no sun, you're in the north of England, you know, okay, <laughs> great. You're probably not going to use the sun, but you can use other things. And mm. it's just one of many tools, and I think that's kind of the beauty of the training I received and the training I was taught to give is that, we don't teach students here's one way of traveling or here's one way of cooking. We teach students lots and lots of different tools and then depending on whatever situation they're in, they can go and use those tools and they can pick what's going to help me most in this moment Mm -hmm. to
0: solve this problem. That's utterly fascinating. What would you say if you had to pinpoint your like, your either your most used tool that you didn't have before or a tool that you're excited to teach your own students about?
1: Uh, Most use tool, the particular cane technique I use. I use modified form of two point touch. So in the UK, we tend to teach constant contact, which is where you roll your cane back and forward from left to right. Mm -hmm. Um, We do not teach that. You're actually moving your cane in an arc. So your cane touches on the right hand side, it's then lifted up, moved in an arc, to tap on the left it's a very low arc you know you're not lifting your cane <laughs> high up into the air or anything. It's, it's a very low arc just an inch or two off the ground yeah and i use a modified form of that where it, there is an element of constant const, um, constant contact because you slide your cane as it touches the ground and that has really changed how i travel and i use a different style cane i don't use a heavy folding cane i use a very lightweight rigid cane so my cane does not fold mm-hmm. um and it is extremely extremely lightweight and it works so well my cane tip is actually a metal glide tip oh, wow. so yes yeah, so it works really really well so that is the most used tool that i didn't have before and i, I just can't even imagine going back now and something i would like to teach my students oh i think it's so difficult there's so many things i think mostly what i want to teach someone isn't a particular. it's more the broad concept of problem solving that actually when you learn to look at situations in a different way a lot of times you don't need a teacher um you have the skills to find your own ways of doing things and i think teaching that concept would be something i would most want to bring because it's the foundation of everything that i do
0: Mm. So you've been really proactive in streamlining the skills that you've learned and are now streamlining. How do you think they're going to work from uh, an economic slash socioeconomic practicality for you were to bring them across? I think it's difficult.
1: I think that we have so much work to do in fixing the rehab system to start with. Unless I can find a job working for an existing rehab organization, you know, and slot myself into a local council or something. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be very difficult to bring these skills to anything more than taking private clients, purely Mm -hmm. because um, the model isn't there. The model isn't there to allow for it. We don't have training centers anymore. Um, We don't have really a model in which welcomes disabled teachers and certainly blind people teaching travel is basically unheard of here and and very much frowned upon Mm. really really frowned upon and so i think that it requires a cultural shift so i hope that i can start small with maybe partnering with local charities and things and doing it that way Mm -hmm. and seeing where it goes because right now there there isn't the infrastructure to allow it
0: on a professional and personal level, what are your goals for the future with everything you've, you know, you've learned and achieved in your own life and taking it forward?
1: Um, my personal and professional goals are sort of tied together in that I'm going back to university to get a master's degree in social and public policy from the University of Leeds. I'll be starting that in January. And my goal afterwards is to get a PhD probably in public policy or an area relating to that possibly education and I might go down the educational policy route I haven't quite decided what my research focus will be yet whether I take a broader policy stance or a more niche area Mm -hmm. and I'd really like to use what I've learned into influencing policy because what I've really really realized is that so much is dictated by what the current policy is so whether policy allows for solid rehab whether it allows for students to get an equal education and whilst we can argue that policy doesn't always work and that's absolutely true when it's not well enforced Mm -hmm. you can't enforce a policy that doesn't exist either so it has to start there and I've realized that I built a lot of strong skills as an advocate and I can advocate on an individual level or I can look to bring that to make sweeping policy change And that is something I would love to do in future. So it's both a professional and personal goal. Because on a personal level, achieving a PhD would be extremely satisfying and would be something I would love to know I've done. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also very much ties into my professional goal.
0: Holly, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. I've learned so much. I'm sure everyone else who's listening to this has learned so much but are there any parting words you'd like to leave us with and any social media slash anything you'd like to share for people to come and find you out in the world?
1: Um, my social media is all fairly streamlined. I'm catch these words on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My blog is Catchthesewords.com. You can also search me on YouTube and you'll find me over there where I make videos. So I have a fairly significant online presence. I'd love for you guys to join me on any of those. And in terms of parting words, I think just take your journey in its own time and always have a goal to learn more, whether that's about yourself or the world, but never stop trying.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Purple Elephant, blindness skills and becoming a rehab officer with me, your host, Sassy Wyatt and the lovely guest today, Holly Scott Gardner. I hope you've enjoyed this two part series. It was such a wonderful and in-depth conversation with Holly. I've honestly learned so much about her, not just as a person, but even how to do blind things that I didn't even know how to do. And I guess because I live in the UK, it is because I haven't learnt it in the way that she did over in America. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy it, please consider rating me on the Apple App Store, five stars, and leaving a comment and sharing this to people that you think might get a lot out of it. Thanks once again, and I hope this episode has helped you to become a better human being.